there's nothing that delights me more than seeing great, talented individuals grow and develop and to become the best version of themselves. I see myself as someone who has an opportunity to help people accelerate on that path. And for some people, it is sales leadership. Some of the former Dropbox sellers are now VP sales at a bunch of client companies now. And I love seeing that. And that's what motivates me. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. OJ, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here. All right, dude, if you've heard these episodes before, you know how they start. If not, well, you're about to know how they start. I read your background back to you. You tell me where I screw up, then we go from there. Sound good? Go for it. Okay, so you got your bachelor's from Penn, then you went to Morgan Stanley as an associate, spent two years there, then you went to NEA, began doing a little bit of venture capital, then you went to Harvard, got your MBA from 2009 to 2011, you went to a company called Scientific Conservation. You spent a year there, and it looks like that was kind of your first foray into the go-to-market sales world. Then you went to Dropbox from 2012 to 2016. You spent two years as the head of online and inside sales, then two years as the head of APAC and LATAM. And as of 2016, so I guess five years ago, you joined at the time what was a small company called Asana, and now you are the head of global revenue and business development. How was that? Bingo. You got it all. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. So you're telling me I didn't screw up a thing. You're totally right. It was my first foray into hands-on operations, software, enterprise, sales. Certainly the only guy who graduated from my entire HBS class who went into <laughs> software sales as an IC. So that's where I learned how to sell. Dropbox was my lucky break. Asana was where I got to put it all together. So a couple questions. One, what was your first ever job? First time anyone paid you to do anything? First time was, this was back in 97, 8. This is in the middle of the internet bubble. I joined a online company that sold BB guns <laughs> in Hong Kong, where I grew up. <laughs> and it was basically a pure price arbitrage opportunity. <laughs> but I was the intern who actually went down to the store to buy the toy guns. And then I would package it up and send it to buyers in the U.S. So you would buy guns in Hong Kong, toy BB guns, repackage them, and then sell them for a higher margin to the States. That's right. All right. Okay. Fair enough. So, dude, Dan Shapiro introduced us. Dan is someone that I admire and respect tremendously. He's about everything you could want in a leader. How do you know Dan? Did you guys go to Harvard together? Yeah, so I was really lucky with Dan. When I was at Dropbox, it was my first opportunity to really get deep into the go-to-market operations world. And so I went on like a campaign to meet all the leaders who I looked up to. And Dan at that point was running Talent Solutions. And so I just got to retain him to be an advisor. And I've learned so much from him in terms of how to build out a team, how to develop that team culture. And that's how I got to know him. That was 10 years ago. And we've stayed in touch since. What do you mean you went on a campaign? Well, if you look at my background is that you went through, like I have an atypical background for someone who is a CRO. 
I started in the analytics world, the strategic world, quant world. When I got into sales leadership at Dropbox, I didn't have that experience of growing up at Salesforce from BDR onwards. So I had to find a way to shortcut that learning. And so what I did was I went out to meet with Jay Simons at Atlassian to learn about the self-serve business. A bunch of leaders at Salesforce, Dan at LinkedIn to understand how enterprise sales organizations are run. How do they incentivize people? How do they motivate? What do they look for? How do they recruit? Mark Roberge at HubSpot. And then a bunch of leaders like Kim Scott, who ran AdSense at Google, to understand how ad sales worked. Because when I had the opportunity to run the Dropbox sales team initially, I was trying to pattern match. And I couldn't figure out the right pattern to execute towards. Because at that point, Dropbox was kind of pioneering this, what we now know well as product-led growth. Back then, that term didn't exist. So I was trying to figure out which is the pattern I should go after. And I, in that process, I met all these awesome people, learned all these different business models. That was my campaign. So Jay Simons, Dan Shapiro, Kim Scott, Mark Roberge, these are like legends. What did you send them? What did you say to get their attention? I was at Dropbox. There was a natural curiosity in what we were doing at Dropbox to begin with. And then I truly have a natural curiosity to understand not what they did at any of these places, but I really wanted to understand how they thought about decisions that they made. And so it was less about, hey, what did you do at Google, Kim? It was more like, hey, how did you think about building the right career paths for people? And I think that may have made the conversations more interesting <laughs> for these folks. I was very yeah. blessed to have great mentors. Oh, you should have just started a podcast. That's how I shortcutted this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, that could have been my career. Dang it. Well, yeah. I'm doing things yeah. the hard way, Jupin. Next time, when you reset your career at 60 years old, you have another 30 years at it, you can start a podcast. I have a random question for you, OJ. And tell me if this is true or false. You are very, very well educated. Your resume reads like the hit list of all amazing things at every brand name company that you could possibly think of. But for some reason, when I listen to you in the speeches that you've given or in writings that you've done, I don't really get the sense that you loved school that much. I don't get the sense that you thought that it was, you know, as you talk about learning, did you love learning through what is the mechanism of formal education? Hmm. I think I started loving formal education in college when I got to pick what I wanted to study. So I had major tiger parents. Just got off the call this morning with my parents, now grandparents, and my children. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're like trying to tiger grandparent here. Sorry, when you say tiger parents, like uh, helicopter parents? Yeah, like, hey, you got to keep going. You got to be the best. Yeah, right. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> but in college, I did get to choose, right? And so I chose philosophy, politics, economics as like my major. And I really love that. The emphasis I would say would be philosophy, which is something that in many ways not practical, but I just, I loved the subject. I loved like the feeling of like stretching my mind. And so that part I really loved, but you're totally right. I would say my real learning started on the job. And taking that a step further, I've also heard you talk about when you were at NEA, which is a very respectable venture capital firm. What did you think about your time there? Did you like it or did it seem similar to 
some of the learnings that you had in school, which was that you felt like, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that you were a little bit on the sidelines of things. Yeah, NEA, gosh, what a lucky break for me to have joined NEA when I did. I love the job. I found it intellectually really interesting because you get a snapshot of the future. You also get to work with phenomenal investors around the table who share a lot of perspective. On a day-to-day, though, basis, my job was due diligence, sourcing, and working with portfolio companies. By far, what I found most rewarding was the third one, working with portfolio companies. I got to watch entrepreneurs and founders go from idea to finding product market fit, to thinking about the go-to-market, failing, figuring something out, and then sometimes it really works out. And that journey was so interesting when I had the opportunity to dig deep. But as an associate, let's be honest, I was there to crunch numbers and, and write memos and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and source deals. And so that's why I decided to leave. Even though I loved the job intellectually, I just wanted a piece of the action. Yeah, I have a huge smile on my face because that's all I do is get to do that third part. I can't get enough of it. And you're right. It is a small glimpse or window of the future. And it's someone who is trying to create it out of nothing. And what an inspirational thing to just be next to. Just having that osmosis of that level of drive and insanity is such a cool thing. Can I read you a quote? I just want your perspective on this, okay? This is from Peter Thiel. And he's talking about Harvard specifically, but generally business school. He doesn't have a very favorable view of it. He says, business school is a cohort of people who are very extroverted, but have no opinions of their own, no convictions. You put them in a hothouse for two years where they talk to other extroverted people who have no idea what to do. (laughs) At the end of the two years, the largest group of them decide to try to catch the last wave. And he explains, in the 80s, they all wanted to be junk bond salesmen like Michael Milken. Then in the tech boom, they all joined the dot-com bubble at the end of it. He says, business schools shape groups of smart but wayward young people into clones following trends. Obviously, he has a way with words, and obviously, he over-rotates on pretty much everything in his life. What do you think of that? Oh, Peter. So (laughs) I disagree with 95% of that. I think business school, first of all, is a fantastic... Now, I can't speak for all schools, right? But my experience has been phenomenal. A lot of people say you go to business school, you don't learn anything. I disagree with that. I learn a ton. Harvard is such a great program for leadership and organizational behavior that I actually wish I went back and took more classes on management and leadership, because usually you don't actually have opportunities to learn that until you are on the job and you screw up. And so I actually learned it done. And all the people that we mentioned earlier, you know, Mark, Kim, Dan, they all got MBAs. And a good MBA program does help you think about scaling organizations. If you're like two people in a garage, whether someone has an MBA or not, doesn't matter at all. The 5% that agree with that statement, I do think there is a big hot following. And I don't know exactly what to make of it, but it is a fact. When I graduated from Harvard, 10% of our class moved to San Francisco. Let's use that as a proxy for getting into tech. This was like right after the Great Recession. So this is before the greatest of all time tech booms. And Mm -hmm. speaking with the dean the other day, he said that five years later, 
basically like around half the people moved out to SF or moved into tech at least. So there is a dimension where if you're going to business school, you're likely a capitalist. You see where the trends are. You want to go where the wind is behind your sails. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Okay, fair. I will have you and Peter on the next podcast for a spirited debate. I'd look forward to that. Bring it on. <laughs> I have more questions about your background, if you will indulge me here. And then we're going to spend a bunch of time on Dropbox and then definitely on Asana. Your parents sent you to boarding school in New Hampshire in ninth grade. It sounds like you got a lot from your parents, a lot of drive, certainly. Just tell me more about that experience and where you think the burning desire to go reach out to a bunch of people on LinkedIn, you think that came from this experience? I think so much of who I am is because of my parents and my upbringing. I think I have to go a little even further back. My mom was a refugee during the Cultural Revolution in China. My grandparents smuggled her out, I think, when she was like seven years old to Hong Kong because they were worried of starvation, literally, during the end of the Cultural Revolution. And my mom grew up most of the time in Hong Kong without her parents. She stayed with a distant relative, worked as a helper. And as a result, my grandparents also got persecuted big time because at that point, under Mao's regime, that's basically treason. And so I have that as my legacy. Fast forward, my parents worked really hard to get me the best life that I can live. I have a huge sense of drive. I'm an investor in my heart, right? So like basically give them their ROI. They invested everything for me and my sisters. And so the drive to work hard, absolutely came from just how they raised me and their own dedication to give me the best life I can live. And that's what led me to boarding school because I was excelling in Hong Kong, but they felt like my English was behind Western standards. And so I went to boarding school. The name of your podcast is Grit. And I think that's where I really learned perseverance because it was really hard. We were up in Hong Kong. People call it the concrete jungle. Show up in a boarding school in Concord, New Hampshire, Beautiful place, but very different than Hong Kong, right? Mm. And the school was much harder, much harder, especially for English. And so I got my first C's in my life, and I would celebrate. The fact that I got a C was a miracle. The first book as a freshman we read was Ovid the Metamorphosis. It's translated to English, but it's still in the prose of Greek. I could not understand at all. And this is before we had internet, cliff notes, all that, right? This is like, you know, you get the book and you got to read it. So I just found perseverance. That's where I learned is I still showed up every day (laughs) to class and I tried. Eventually I was able to catch up. What a cool story. I don't think it's an accident that the baby in the background, congratulations, you just had a boy. That story really hits home. As a new dad, and it took us a little while to schedule this podcast because of your newfound dadhood. What are lessons that you learned the hard way? that you'd rather the kiddo screaming in the back not have to learn that way? And what are lessons that you feel like you can impart? How can you teach grit? How can you teach that resilience to your kid? And do you even want to? Yeah, I think what I've learned most in my most recent adulthood is really about being true to yourself and and as authentic as you can be. And and here's my older one here. Hey. (laughs) 
Give me a second. Thank you. Thank you. Are you a choo choo train? So, how do I want this choo choo train? Gosh. Perfect add to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think in my most recent life learnings is around authentic leadership. I think I, because as an immigrant, I've always asked myself, what does it take to fit in? What is the right mold? When I went on my campaign to reach out to all these sales leaders, it was because I was insecure. First of all, I don't look like any sales leader. You're going to find very few Asians in senior revenue positions. And so I didn't know whether I had it or not. And so part of the reason why is like, I'm trying to understand what's the right mold. And I think as I've matured in my career, what I've realized is there is no right mold. The more authentic you are to yourself and to your core principles, the more effective you will be, whatever you do as a leader, as an artist, as whatever it is, there's no right mold for it. And so if you ask people on my team, how am I as a sales leader? People probably have a slightly different experience than in other places because I have learned to just embrace who I am. And so when, to your question of how am I going to teach grit, passion is a big part of that. And I think helping my children find that passion and then be their true authentic selves to then go just pursue it just for the sake of pursuing it is how I'm currently thinking about it. Was there a signal or a moment, a breaking point for you when you realized who you were and how to lean into that? There's a lot that I have struggled with in my life around this same insecurity of, and you said it well, do I have it? I've asked myself that question in many situations in my life. Do I have it? And ultimately that question that I ask myself is the chip on my shoulder that pushes me to work myself to the bone to prove to myself that I do. And often leaning on what and who I am is what enables me to make it happen. Are there any points that you had a positive feedback loop where being your authentic self worked and showed you that you had it, where leaning into not being Jay Simons or Dan Shapiro or Mark Roberge, but being OJ and distinctly and authentically OJ, is there any clear image or picture in your head where you think about, oh man, I was totally myself and it actually worked and I did have it. Does the question make sense? Totally. I would say at the tail end of my time at Dropbox, and certainly within my first two years at Asana, is when things started really clicking for me from that angle of the more I lean into myself, the more effective I will be. So when I was at Dropbox, one of the questions I had was like, hey, can I be the type of leader that can attract the best of the best talent and identify the best of the best talent? Because as you know, when you're building teams as a senior leader, you are who your team becomes. And your performance will be based on your team that you hire especially your senior leaders. And so when I was at Dropbox, gosh, I must have interviewed over a thousand people. And I would develop my own intuition on, hey, is this person going to work out? And how so, right? Using that VC mindset, like treat each person as an investment. And sometimes I will have disagreement with whoever the hiring manager is. And I didn't trust my gut. And I'd be like, okay, well, you know, if you think this person's going to be great, I'm going to find go for it. But I think, yes, this person crushed it at success factors, but I don't think they will do the Dropbox sale well. And so what I did was I actually kept a log on how I read people during the interview process because people would tell me, hey, you know, you don't really know enterprise sales. 
Therefore, like you don't know what you're looking for. And I literally had a catalog of how everyone I interviewed, what I thought of them, and how they performed over time. And by the end of the time at Dropbox, because we hired so many people, I had quantitative data on my instincts on people. Because at Dropbox, that was when I realized that there's a new way to go after the enterprise. Today, we know it starts with product-led growth, and you need a different type of profile for it. But anyways, that's when I first got this intuition of like, you know what? I'm actually good at attracting and identifying and evaluating talent. Because if you don't have that, you don't have a shot at being a successful go-to-market leader. That's one. Second question I had was like, hey, can I motivate and inspire a team? Because when you think about your typical extroverted revenue sales leader, I'm not that person. I'm an introvert, which already Peter Thiel says everyone who gets an MBA is an extrovert. I'm not. I'm, I'm an introvert. I think people call it the extroverted introvert. And I'm not your rah-rah kind of, you know, hey, we're going to go crush this quarter guy. Of course, I care about driving and crushing the quarter. But what inspires me about Asana is not about, hey, we're going to crush this, the number. It's developing a category. And so when I do my all hands, when I work with my team, and I, I don't motivate them by like some short-term goal, but it's really more around, hey, like, if we do X, Y, Z, we will be on our path to becoming a category leader. And that is much more exciting than killing it this quarter, this fiscal year. And I got a lot of feedback that I've had very little attrition on my team because I think people are really, really gravitate towards that kind of motivation. And so that I got more confidence. Hey, you know what? I can lead big teams. I can inspire big teams. I can align big teams towards a common big goal. And so, yes, these are some points in time where I just develop more confidence in my ability to lead as OJ. What a great answer. So on the scorecard piece, I was thinking about this just the other day, and I've done a similar thing, especially when I was junior in my career, where I was really insecure about the vote that I would have versus those that were more senior to me and just deferring to their vote because they were more senior to me, not because necessarily they've developed better instincts than me. Also, what I wish I did that I didn't do was keep their scorecard. And so I wish I had a scorecard of the votes that I made. I also wish I had a scorecard of the votes that they made. And over time, I would want to refine my interview panels with those that I thought also had really good instincts. Because just because you're senior, it does not mean that you're qualified to evaluate talents. What do you think about that? There are some senior leaders that I've seen how they in their debriefs and how they go about evaluating talent that they can be biased towards what they've seen before and what they've seen before may not be where we're going. So I totally see that. And I absolutely think when you are trying to scale at the rate that honestly the evaluations today require, right? We went from 20 people to my team has plus or minus 400 people now in five years. You need to build and invest a lot in your hiring process and systems, and you have to have these checks and balances. And so just because you're an interviewer doesn't mean you get to stay as an interviewer. I get into debriefs, and that's where I like really gut check and ensure that the quality bar of how we assess talent is high. We're going to give you a good example. What I hate is when someone says, I'm not sure if they're the right culture fit. Gosh, you hear this thrown around a lot in Silicon Valley because everyone thinks there's some precious culture thing. And I'm like, well, why? Explain. Because if we've tested our competencies and everyone's a check mark on it, 
just one person can blackball someone. I mean, this is where you can, sometimes you have diversity issues. And it's something that we really value at Asana is diversity. Really need someone to spell out. When you say someone is not competent, what competency? If you say someone is not culture fit, how? And why do you think that is the case? It's really important to build that machine so that you can scale. Otherwise, you basically have leakages in your recruiting funnel and you'll see yeah. your quality bar would dip. Oh, I could ask you so many questions on this. I have another aside that I want to talk to you about. Dude, you're an impressive guy. I got to be honest. Your resume is pretty insane. You're on the board of directors for Grab. For the audience that doesn't know, and OJ, correct me if I'm wrong, but Grab is basically the Uber of Southeast Asia for sure. And more and more so, I think generally Asia. You met the co-founders at Harvard and you've been on the board since 2014. It's a 14 plus billion dollar company at this point, raised over 9 billion. It's about to go public. So for the American audience, Uber sold its stake to Grab some time ago because they were competing tooth and nail for those markets. And ultimately, I think Grab probably had a two to three month head start on each country that they were entering in there. Uber was, by the way, fighting their own battles on the home turf here. And so eventually they made the decision that Uber would sell its stake to Grab and Dara now sits on the board. Can you give me the backstory from a board member's perspective of when you're fighting Uber, which is quite a daunting opponent, I would imagine, what was the decision-making process like in terms of should we keep fighting? Should we buy? Should we sell? I would just love to know any backstory. Gosh, that is like a five-hour podcast, you bet. <laughs> I think for years, Grab was understaffed relative to Uber. I remember having a conversation with the founders like, hey, you have 40 engineers. Uber's data science team dedicated to just Asia is bigger than your entire engineering team. You need to find other ways to compete. And I think that's where, well, of course, we're competing head to head, but we need to find that competitive differentiation. And for Grab, it was very much around going local. For example, 70% of, I think, Indonesia is unbanked. And you can imagine if that is the case, it's a very cash economy. Grab was the first to actually accept cash and build an entire ride-hailing business that takes the primary form of payment, whereas you can't do that. And Uber didn't build that for a long time. And so I think those are the decisions we made. It's like, hey, the first decision is, is this market an important market where you need to get a critical scale to have a lasting, enduring presence in the region? And we was like, yes, okay, then how to do that? How we did that was at Grab was definitely going super local. You're right. I could ask you five hours worth of questions on just those strategic decisions alone. Was there ever a moment where you thought Uber was going to win? Just straight up dominate. Oh, yeah. Uber is a formidable competitor. And the velocity at which they move is super impressive. But I give credit to Anthony Huiling, the founders, and Ming, because they were just so mission-focused. What continues to motivate them is not beating Uber. What motivates them is all about their social mission for Southeast Asia. And it's hard to quantify that but they were motivated by helping bring more people out of poverty in Southeast Asia. And 
Grab is a platform that can help do that. And there are many times where we're like the Uber gorillas coming at us, but I think the founders' resilience around staying true to the mission actually helped because then we made those longer-term differentiating decisions. At Dropbox, you scaled the business from 20 to 120-ish salespeople. You took the ARR from 20 to 150 million. It is one of the great tales of early go-to-market category definition companies, right? This product-led growth. This was, along with Atlassian and a few others, the precursor to what we see now in companies like Slack and Zoom and Figma, a lot of companies that Kleiner's had the fortune of being in as well. In retrospect, it seems very obvious now. But when you're drawing up those playbooks, it's not. I think I'm more interested in hearing about what didn't work. In those times, what were some of the things that you failed at? What were the, some of the bets that you made that didn't work? What were some of the things that you think could have made this a, a bigger company, Dropbox, than it ended up being? Yeah, any thoughts there? I'd just love to hear from you. So you're totally right. I think Dropbox was one of the first companies that was going after a B2B audience. And today we call product-led growth, which some people say is synonymous with self-service, but I think it's a little bit more than that. I think what we tried to do at Dropbox was build a best-in-class self-service business, which we had, and then layer on top of that enterprise sales. So to your question is, hey, what did not work well? Well, I think I would say enterprise sales at Dropbox was challenged because we actually adopted the same segmentation approach as how most sales organizations have been organized over the past probably 20 years, which was you organize and segment everything by SMB, mid-market enterprise or corporate enterprise. That has been how sales teams have been organized for ages. And it makes a ton of sense because generally the selling motion the talent that you need for selling into an enterprise is different than a mid-market company. And so we organized that way. Now, what I noticed at Dropbox, what I learned is that product-led growth breaks that mold because the product gets you in to SMB mid-markets and enterprise at the same time. And that's what we did notice at Dropbox. From the day one, people would say, oh, Dropbox wasn't an enterprise. I'm like, what do you mean? majority of Fortune 500 companies have Dropbox usage. Lots of it. So what do you mean that it's not being used in the enterprise? And so I wouldn't say it's failed. I just think that we didn't reach our full potential. We segmented everything, our team, our strategy, our go-to-market, our career paths around. It's kind of like a SMB mid-market enterprise thing. And what you saw was essentially the dilution of enterprise team's focus. What we saw was because our inbound machine, the product-led growth machine was so strong, what I saw was the enterprise team would spend so much time just fielding and working small deals that generally come through inbound organic, basically product-led, and avoid doing the harder work, which is developing long-term trusted relationships, senior champions, because human beings are drawn towards closing, no matter how experienced you are. So what I saw was that a 100-user deal for a wall-to-wall deal in SMB for 100 or 100 seats in a mid-market company or 100 seats in an enterprise of 5,000 people, landing that deal is the same. But we had the most senior people closing 100-seat deals at Nike. And I think that was actually 
a lesson I learned that I applied it at Asana because I, I didn't want to see that. Because long-term, what happened at Dropbox is that we never broke into the enterprise in a big way. And I think we just lost out on the long-term enterprise play because we were too distracted by product-led growth funnel. I just want to know about what didn't work. I want to know about the unrealized potential that Dropbox could have had. Had you had the experience and knowledge that you do now? I just want to hear about that. If there's one thing that I think on the go-to-market side that we could have done better to reach our full potential, it would be how we organize our teams. I think back then it wasn't clear what product-led growth meant and how to best organize to take advantage of a business that had a product-led growth component to it. So what we did, we organized our team, right? We layered on sales on top of self-serve in a very traditional enterprise sales model method, which is everything is around the segmentation of SMB, mid-market, and enterprise. And traditionally, that makes a lot of sense because the enterprise sale is very, very different than an SMB sale. What I learned from my time at Dropbox is with product-led growth, the selling motion for selling into the SMB and selling enterprise actually is not that different. Selling 100 seats wall-to-wall in an SMB is not that different than selling 100 seats team-wide wall-to-wall in an enterprise. And so why do we need to separate the team out that way? What I noticed at Dropbox was our enterprise team, our most expensive people that we hire, they would spend a lot of time managing, triaging, essentially the product-led growth business and the leads that it generated, which generally were small teams. And it was a distraction in many ways from having those reps really focus on your traditional value selling, building champions, executive relationship building with large enterprises. And I think this is a big reason why Dropbox never truly penetrated the enterprise because folks like Box and Microsoft beat us to it because they spent their time developing those top-down relationships, whereas our enterprise team really focused on really just the bottoms up. And there are definitely lots of goodies from the bottoms up, right? Product-led growth gets you in the door, gets you quick champions right away, but at the same time, you still need to do that top-down value selling. And so I think how we organized was something I learned at Dropbox was if you have a product-led growth business, the traditional way of organizing sales may not be the right approach. So when I first joined Asana, we operated a little differently. We tried to bifurcate the business that is product-led and the business that is sales-led. And when people say the business that is product-led, people sometimes assume that it's synonymous with self-service, and it's not, right? There is a product-led growth business can absolutely have a sales team that supports it, that helps drive and expands on the leads that are produced from the product-led growth business. But at the same time, you still need a team that is more traditional, that focuses on value selling. And so in the beginning, we did not separate the team by SMB mid-market enterprise. We essentially had, you can call it the PLG team. And I had a self-serve team. I had a PLG sales team that overlays on top of the self-serve team. And then I had an outbound team that really focused on going after big expansions only of accounts that are ready for that kind of a sale. Does that make sense? It does. And maybe to help clarify for me, so as an example, let's use Netflix. If Netflix did not have a natural groundswell of users of Asana, 
or Dropbox, let's just say. You're saying in the Dropbox days, because they were not self-serve at the time, they were not using the product organically, you were not serving that customer because there was no orientation around how to sell to someone that's not already using the product. And so what would happen at Dropbox is that Microsoft or Box would win that business because they would just go outbound, find that champion, and sell top-down in a traditional sense. Whereas what you're saying now, and again, I could be wrong here, is that at Asana, you'd say, look, we have our own self-serve business. We have our own product-led growth business that layers on top of the self-serve. But we also want to be able to address those who don't know that they need Asana yet. And we can self-catalyze that sales motion and go sell to the upper echelon of the market without relying on the product-led motion that got us to where we are today. Is that kind of right? Yeah. And here's another way to think about it. I think we have three businesses. I call it seed, land, and expand. The seed business is definitely the self-serve business that gets us everywhere. Land is when we become relevant in an organization. Land is where we create the groundswell. And expand is when we try to go company-wide, right, where we become company infrastructure. And C-Land Expand, to me, is a better way to organize than SMB Mid-Market Enterprise. Because even in an enterprise, the motion it takes to land in an enterprise is very, very different than the motion it takes to expand. Because expand is about, hey, you're working with procurement, you're doing executive QBRs. Sometimes you're even selling a different product set, certainly a different use case. You're selling to different personas. And so for a while, we actually segmented our business this way. So you have an expand team, and they would have mid-market and enterprise accounts. But their job is to really go big because these accounts are ready. There already is that groundswell. Now formalize the usage in these companies. And then you have a land team that focuses on companies where we have to create that groundswell. The motion, the playbook to actually create that groundswell is really, really different than expand. It's not that different between a mid-market company and an enterprise company. That makes a lot of sense to me. This company, Asana, could you give us the 30-second pitch? What does Asana actually do? Asana is a work management platform that helps teams organize and manage their work so that collaborative work can be done more effortlessly. This company has a $12.5-plus market cap. Dustin Moskovitz, who's the former co-founder of Facebook with Zuckerberg, is the CEO and founder. The early investors of this thing, it's kind of the who's who, Benchmark Founders Fund, Y Combinator. There's some private investors, including yours truly, Peter Thiel, Mark Zuckerberg, Sean Parker. It's a pretty incredible business. It IPO'd in 2020. It was voted number 15 on Fast Company's 2020 Most Innovative Companies list. When you joined the business in 2017, sales represented 8% of the org. What kind of cultural challenges did that present to you when you came in? It was new. Sales was new. First of all, I, th I do think that there is a, generally speaking, Silicon Valley doesn't really understand what sales does. And so I think when I first joined, there was, a little, not a lot, a little apprehension about, oh boy, all these salespeople are going to come in and it's going to change your culture. And again, I think this is where I focus a lot on, I mean, I give credit to Dustin and Asana for embracing that and really challenging what is culture. For me, culture is like the summation of the people that you bring in and what they add. It's not this is a static thing. If you want to build an enduring business, 
And Dustin is 100% mission-oriented. And so he, from the very top, made it really clear that the only way we're going to achieve our mission to help humanity thrive, enabling the world's teams to work together effortlessly, is to build a high-growth, self-sustaining business. Revenue is the fuel that allows us to invest in the product continually to achieve our mission. And so it wasn't all on me. There was a little apprehension, but I think it was very quickly addressed by the management team and then also the initial hires we had. The initial sales hires we had were terrific. And I think they changed the perception that some people may have about sales, which is like, oh, you're just a bunch of bros coming in and cold calling and such. And it's way more strategic than that. And I also made sure that the initial hires were people who really appreciate the product. They didn't need sales engineers to like demo the product. They just, they love the product. And I think that also came through. And so it was actually, frankly, pretty easy to build a more balanced culture, so to speak, between the technical side and the business side at Asana. On the talent side, I've heard you say that you look for excellence in one area that has really nothing to do with selling. I've heard you say that some of the best hires you've ever made were teachers from Teach for America that were teaching math to inner city kids. Can you tell me more about that? So when I think about interviewing, besides interviewing for the obvious competencies about can someone drive business, it's really important for me that someone knows what excellence looks like. I want to build a world-class team and I want everyone to help be a part of that and they have to be world-class as well. I don't think you can be world-class if you don't know what top-tier excellence looks like. And so that's why I love understanding someone's profile less about how much sales and how much revenue and what percentage over quota have you achieved. For me, it's like demonstrate to me something that you've been great at. Because then I know that you know what it takes. You know how much effort goes in. You know how much dedication, perseverance you need to do. You know what work ethic is required to be great at something. And I generally think that if you can be great at one thing, you know at least how to be great at something else. Which is why at Asana, when I think about building the team, the sales track record is just one piece of things I look at. I love that. There's a quote that you gave that I really, really enjoy. You said, if I see a dozen VPs of sales at other elite companies in a few years who came from Asana, I'll know I did something right. Is that what drives you now at this point? Having been on the board of Grab and having taken this company from where it was to where it is and Dropbox and all the successes that you've had, when you look back, is this what really gets you going these days? It was my primary motivator. It still is my primary motivator. There's nothing that delights me more than seeing great, talented individuals grow and develop and to become the best version of themselves. I see myself as someone who has an opportunity to help people accelerate on that path. And for some people, it is sales leadership. Some of the former Dropbox servers are now VP sales at a bunch of client companies now. And I love seeing that. And that's what motivates me. And specifically, I think the next generation of enterprise companies will have this kind of blend of product-led growth and value enterprise selling. And I am really attracted to the opportunity to 
take traditional enterprise leaders and have them understand how to also capitalize on a product-led growth business to be the best revenue leader that they can be over time. I find that super inspirational. I fully expect that there will be a ton of leaders that come out from Asana, just as there has been from Dropbox under our revenue program. And to share those learnings, that's what really motivates me. What does the word grit mean to you? I love the word grit so much that on my team, I have something called operating principles. We have like five operating principles. This is how we want people to show up. And one of them we call celebrate the struggle. And it's this recognition that struggling and failing is part of the process. And when you're in the darkest of times to actually find a way to celebrate, because that means you're learning. That means you're getting better. And it also means that you got to be resilient. You have to keep showing up. Today might be a good day. Tomorrow might be a bad day. But every day is a new day to restart. And to me, that's what grid is about. It's about the struggle and it's about celebrating it. I assume Asana is hiring for everything. I assume your go-to-market organization is hiring across the board. What's the best way to get a hold of you? And are there any key hires that you'd like to shout out now that are top of mind for OJ? Yes, we are absolutely hiring. AEs, SEs, CSMs, ops, everything. We're growing like crazy. In terms of specific, I would say, enterprise sales people and leaders who want to learn this new way to enterprise are the people that I'm looking for. OJ, you're the man. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Jubin. This was fun. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.